Richard Niles, and tonight, my history of pop arranging takes us to the birth of a new style of music in the fabulous 50s. After World War II, another war was raging between American radio stations and ASCAP, the American Society of Composers and Publishers. Yeah, everybody, let's have some fun. You only live but once, and when you're dead, you're done. So let the good time roll. ASCAP controlled the great songs of writers like Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, and Cole Porter. Radio stations thought ASCAP were charging too much for granting the rights to play their music. Meanwhile, a new post-war generation of teenagers had grown up, hungry for a music to call their own. Radio stations formed their own performing rights society called BMI, Broadcast Music Incorporated. They boycotted ASCAP's music and had to find something else to play on the airwaves. They signed people who wrote blues, R&B, folk, and country, people who hitherto had never had a chance. The public heard the raw new music, and they loved it. New record companies realized that this sound still needed to be made accessible to the public, so they turned to a number of talented arrangers. New Orleans has always been a fertile delta for new music. One of the pioneering arrangers from New Orleans of the 50s was Dave Bartholomew. Have you heard the story of the little country boy? Here's 50s archivist Dave Clark. And full of joy. Well, New Orleans is always credited with being the birthplace of jazz, which is sometimes a, an arguable point. But after the war, lots of the people who've grown up with Dixieland music, such as Dave Bartholomew, just as it happened on the West Coast, but this was in New Orleans, he formed a small combo, a sextet, was playing the clubs in New Orleans and uh, was well known in the area. He was then spotted by the visiting Braun brothers, who owned a record label from the north called Deluxe Records, and they decided to record him in New Orleans. And his very first record, Country Boy, was uh, a big hit and remained his bestseller, ironically, although he went on to produce other people with much more success. Bartholomew himself says that the record sold about 100,000 in an interview and this made it, at that time, a black hit, and he was never to repeat the thing again. Now you heard my story, darling, can't you see? That little country boy happens to be me. After that point, he discovered Fats Domino, a very capable pianist who was playing in a club called the Bronze Peacock Club. He met Imperial Records owner, Lou Chud, Chud went to New Orleans and Dave Bartholomew presented the young Fats Domino to him and they recorded about half a dozen numbers by Fats Domino. The Fat Man was originally intended as the flip side of Fats Domino's first record, Detroit City Blues. But the, the Fat Man took off and Fats Domino became um, an almost overnight star. But the crucial element of this, despite the fact that the tune was a modified version of an old Jack Dupree number, with the lyrics changed from Junkers Blues to a song about a fat man, 
the manner in which it was played, the arrangement and the, the style of the horns, in particular the sax solos and piano solos on these records, was brand new. And that was a pointer in the direction of where R&B in the early 50s was going to go and what was eventually be known as rock and roll. In fact, many people cite The Fat Man as the first rock and roll record. I'm gone, I'm gone, gone away. And I'm going, going to see. Cause women in bad life think and it's so away. I found my thrill. When Dave Bartholomew and Fast Domino came to record Blueberry Hill, Dave Bartholomew was definitely unimpressed by the idea and even unimpressed by the finished product. And it was probably, again, the beginning of a new trend because when the record took off, the success of such things as Blueberry Hill prompted Fast Domino to record other standards and even I would say prompted Art Roop at Specialty Records to get Little Richard to record such things as Babyface and By the Light of the Silvery Moon, taking rock and roll one step further away from its origins and nearer to Timpan Alley. Jesse Stone was another giant of 50s music. His career went from jazz to blues to R&B, but he's considered one of the most influential composers and arrangers to help create the rock and roll era. Jesse Stone was an older guy than most of the uh, arrangers to be involved with R&B in as much as he was born in 1901. He'd been involved with arranging for territory bands in the 1930s of Terence Holder and others, then became a staff writer for a company called Mills Music in New York after Duke Ellington had helped him get the position and then became an arranger, writer, and even comedy writer in as much as he wrote jokes at the Apollo Theater. But his first big success was Idaho. Idaho. After that, he became arranger for an all-female band called the Sweethearts of Rhythm. He toured Europe after the war, immediately after the war, with the Sweethearts of Rhythm, and then returned to New York recording for RCA such titles as Hey Sister Lucy. But his real success was not to be as a singer, but as an arranger when he went to Atlantic Records. Come here, baby. Sit right down on my knee. You know, 
I've just got to tell you how you've been worrying for me. I've been watching you walk up and down in front of my door almost every day. Now at last I've got you here alone, and this is what I'd like to say. Hey, Sister Lucy, what makes your lips so juicy? Legendary producer for Atlantic Records, Jerry Wexler. i never seen such a groovy mouth. When I joined Atlantic in 1953, Jesse was an established fixture there. He was arranging for people like Ray Charles and Joe Turner. And Jesse was actually a contemporary of Jelly Roll Morton. It's unimaginable. Jelly Roll Morton is credited with being the first person to actually arrange jazz music. Because until then, they played what they called collective improvisation. The first person, allegedly, to uh, arrange by section, well, Jelly Roll is credited with being one of the first, and it might be so. However, Jesse Stone came right along just a few years after, and he also began by doing arrangements. So he goes back to the 20s, or before, actually. Because Jesse had a great feel for rhythm. He had a, a feel for early jazz, stomps, rags, early jazz, which was on the borderline with the ragtime. But he also had a great appreciation of the culture. One of Jesse's specialties was engendering what you would call a feel-good Saturday night jam. And it was strictly a black cultural thing at that time. So Jesse brought a lot of humor to it, a lot of folk humor. There were some of his lines that could not have been written without having had his experience. In one of his songs, uh, he says, uh, here's a dime, uh, I'm paraphrasing, use your feet, go across the street and get me some stewing meat. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a Caucasian coming up with a line like that. Juicy mouth, Lucy. Sloppy mouth, Lucy. They're big and fat and loose like that, but they sure are good. I mean, they sure are good. Some of the great lines in uh, Shake, Rattle, and Roll. For the day, it sounded very salacious. Today, it's, uh, it's almost innocent. Get out of that bed. Wash your face and hands. Lines like, I'm like a one-eyed cat peeping in a seafood store. I can look at you and see you ain't no child no more. Well, the inference, the inferences there are without limit. They're cosmic. Jesse Stone's biggest success, and the song you'll probably be remembered for, was Shake, Rattle and Roll, which was recorded in 1954 by Big Jill Turner. Most people will remember it from the Bill Haley version, but the crucial thing that separates the two is the instrumentation and arrangement. Bill Haley turned it into a corny rock and roll song with a very sparse instrumentation. The Big Joe Turner original is not only a, a harder hitting record, it's a very sharp little arrangement with typical New York 
saxophone solo. for some background singing and we didn't have any around. So Arma, Jesse and I went out into the studio while Tom attended to the parts and uh, we hollered shake, rattle and roll along with Joe Turner in unison. Fortunately, there were no harmony parts required. <laughs> was composing till the day he died. He'd wake up in the middle of the night, he'd jot down a few lines and a few notes, and he actually performed in his 90s locally. Jesse was one of the all-time good ones. One of the good ones indeed. Real, I got a woman. Jesse and Jerry Wexler worked with another one of the good ones, Ray Charles. I've had the pleasure of working with him, and I can tell you he richly deserves the title many have laid on him, genius. Singer, songwriter, arranger, Ray not only created his own style, but like Miles Davis, he reinvented himself many times, recording R&B, blues, soul, jazz, and country. Dave and Jerry tell us how the genius took his first steps. I got a woman way over town that's good to me. Oh, yeah. Despite the fact that Ray Charles these days and for most of his recording career has been known as a man who composes his own material and does all his own arrangements, his early successes on Atlantic were arranged and produced by Jesse Stone. She sings a love just for me. Yeah, she love me so tenderly. I got a woman way over town that's good to me. Oh, yeah. A friend of mine once talked about Ahmed Erdogan's and my role in recording Ray Charles. My friend Stanley Booth, the, you know, the great Southern writer, said uh, when Armand and Jerry went in to produce Ray Charles, he said what they did was turn on the lights in the studio and Ray didn't need that. I know you told me such a long time ago that you didn't want me. There was a definite watershed, which came, I think, in 54. From 52 to 54, Ray Charles worked in the tradition with arrangers, particularly Jesse Stone, and with songs which the company may have provided, and with musicians that were picked by music contractors and so on. Ray Charles made a quantum leap from being a creature 
of the record company controlled in a sense because nobody told Ray Charles that he could or couldn't do this, but, but I think it was 1954, and Ray Charles called us down to Atlanta. He was playing at a club there called the Peacock, and right across the street was the Peacock Hotel. So we, we go up to the hotel to see Ray, we have a little conversation. He says, okay, fellas, come with me. He ran down the stairs, across the street, up the stairs into this little rehearsal hall, and there's this band sitting there, and we had to run to keep up with them. There's the band sitting there, Ray counts off, and there they hit into songs like I Got a Woman, uh, Greenback Dollar Bill, and it was astonishing because the arrangements were completely done, the band was rehearsed, and it was a total departure from Ray Charles being maneuvered, controlled. But he made this jump into being his own man, writing his own songs, doing his own arrangements. And that was the Ray Charles that became the great man who took the songs of the Lord, put the devil's word to them, and created soul music single-handed. So I know it's The great arranger Harold Batiste was another influential talent to come out of New Orleans. He helped launch the careers of Sam Cooke and Sonny and Cher. He worked with Rye Cooter, the Neville Brothers, the Righteous Brothers, Tina Turner, and Tom Waits. He was also a major influence on another hugely gifted cat from New Orleans, Mac Rebenack, otherwise known as Dr. John. Echo, echo. Matt Rebenack was a young white New Orleans musician who was very influenced by the 50s R&B that was being created in New Orleans. He was taught to play guitar by Walter Nelson, Fats Domino's guitarist. Matt's father had a, a record shop and some kind of deal where he changed records on jukeboxes all over New Orleans. As a child, Mac was taken with his father and probably got a glimpse of New Orleans R&B that locked him into a, a love of it. And as we all know, he eventually went from being uh, Mac Rebenack uh, on East Records, making various records under both his own name and as Morgus the Magnificent and uh, as Gene and Al's Spacemen, uh, making excellent instrumentals. He, he reinvented himself on the West Coast much later as Dr. John and all the gumbo sound we now associate with him uh, is really um, what has been fused from all his New Orleans influences as, as a young man. Mac Rabinac, if anybody, any Caucasian, white person, could ever catch and express black soul Mac Rabinite, Dr. John. New Orleans arranger Harold Batiste. My working with Mac was almost like a parental thing. I mean, I felt about Mac, he, like he was a kid when he came to me. 
and I had developed a relationship of sort of taking care of him. His mother and him sort of uh, evidently had some confidence that I would look out for him because the situations in which he got himself into weren't always, you know, <laughs> the safest things to be involved. So my working with Mac was always trying to expose him and make the best of his use of his talents in a sort of a kinship way. Before the Dr. Jones stuff, when we was in New Orleans, he would bring stuff to me, you know, as songs to be recorded by somebody else. So it wasn't a matter of working them out, you know, for him. And then I would try to adapt the song to the singer who was going to do it and work out an arrangement that we thought was, uh, you know, that would be catchy or suitable for whatever the song was and the singer. My whole approach always to putting together stuff like that is to not bring my own ego to it, but to bring my, my service to it and try to serve the song and the, the singer. I never really worked with Harold Baptiste except once on the record called Gumbo, which I did with Dr. John in LA. We had all New Orleans musicians there. And this record Gumbo was intended to replicate, to sample all of the original New Orleans rhythm and blues styles. We had the Angola prison songs like Ico, Junko Partner, and so on. And Harold Batiste was a, a close friend of Mac Rabinac, otherwise known as Dr. John from New Orleans, and uh, was a very good arranger. He also was very important in the genesis of Sonny and Cher. I hooked up first with Sonny uh, back when I first uh, started going by specialty records. I had got taken on as a sort of a talent scout, and, and uh, there would be times when I was at the office, and Sonny would come by with songs. He was another cat who was a songwriter, and he'd come by specialty with some songs. I think Larry Williams had done one of his songs. Then Art hired Sonny. So it was then it was Sonny and I working for Specialty. So that's how we f first formed our relationship. I guess the best-known result of that relationship was the hugely successful I Got You, Babe. Harold how he came up with that brilliant little oboe line. When I'm doing something like that in the present, I only think about what 
will be most comfortable for the artist and what will frame the song in the, to the best of my ability. I mean, that was what that little song was. You know, it was just a six, eight waltz, you know. At first I was thinking about something like a tuba and a trombone or something, but it was just a oom-pa-pa song. But at the time, it was just a way of doing the oom-pa-pa thing in a more delicate, childlike, you know, this was a part of a teenage kind of thing with some instruments that were not ordinarily used. Harold Batiste is now associate professor of music at the University of New Orleans. Another arranger who had a close relationship with Sonny Bono was one of the 60s most fascinating figures, Jack Nietzsche. Talk about unsung heroes. Here's a man who exemplifies the reason for this series. He arranged not just a few, but many all-time classic hits. He wrote and produced two number one songs, won an Oscar, and wrote many brilliant film scores. He worked with major artists like Phil Spector, Tina Turner, the Rolling Stones, Miles Davis, and the London Symphony Orchestra. His life was both dramatic and tragic, yet his name is only known to a few music aficionados. When you were a young boy, did you have a puppy that always followed you around? Well, I'm gonna be as faithful as that puppy. No, I'll never let you down. As Phil Spector's arranger, Jack Nietzsche actually built the famous wall of sound for the genius, megalomaniac, innovative psycho Spector. On March 7, 1966, they recorded the truly epic River Deep Mountain High. And by the end of the session, the fabulous Tina was standing at the microphone, stripped down to her bra, dripping with sweat. Nietzsche said, even when she was cutting a scratch vocal, she was so into it, she was holding her crotch on the high notes.
Rodney Bingenheimer, who brought Brian Wilson to the session, said Spectre and Nietzsche were like co-pilots of the Concord, guiding Tina through her vocal. They were wearing dark glasses and puff shirts, and Phil was screaming like a madman the whole time. Though considered by many to be the greatest pop record of all time, River Deep Mountain High only reached number 88 in the U.S. British record buyers showed considerably more taste by taking it to number three. That's all, folks, but deep and high thanks to our guests Dave Clark, Harold Batiste, and Jerry Wexler, and mountainous thanks to producer Elizabeth Clark. Next week, Hitsville and Soulsville. I'm Richard Niles, offering you a once-in-a-lifetime chance to join me again same time next week here on Radio 2 with my History of Pop Arranging. Amen.